He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day and for this opportunity to come and and hear your word preached and proclaimed. We thank you for the truth and the goodness and the grace um, in your word. We thank you um, for sending your son for the grace that we've received um, and the love that we've received from you. We pray that you'd be with Jordan as he brings your word this morning, that you would open our ears and our hearts to hear, um, and that we would follow you um, in in all of our ways. We thank you and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lindsay. Y'all can have a seat. And thank you for standing. Um, Thank you. For our life he bled and died, justice has been satisfied. Amen. Isn't that such a great song? I love that song. Um, Each week that, oh, for those of you who don't know me, I think I know just about everybody in this room. But if I don't, my name's Jordan Moore. I'm one of our community group leaders and a budding preacher, I think I can say at this point. It's like fourth or fifth time I've been up here. Um, And speaking of preaching, something I noticed and I wanted to kind of highlight before we get started in the text Each week that I get a chance to kind of do this and prepare, one thing is kind of the reigning feeling in me, which is I have a lot to learn about preaching. I'm kind of listening to things and studying and reading and trying to learn how to do this work really well. And I just feel this deep sense of appreciation for you guys, for the church, 
Um, and here's why. The church really is the soil in which teachers and leaders and preachers are grown up in. And so your grace, your willingness to walk in step with people as they learn is vital and is part of God's design for how this is supposed to work. So I just want to take the moment, since I have the floor, and say thank you. I feel really prompted to say thank you to you guys for being willing to give feedback and walk with a young, budding, budding preacher. And also, as the years tick on, it will be my constant prayer that we continue to be this way so that we can continue to raise leaders and preachers and teachers for our church and for the community in which we live. This is an important work that we do, so thank you. Um, Last week, we started and will continue this week in Matthew 13. We're dealing with parables. Um, and in our context this morning, we find Jesus sitting in a boat in the sea, um, some distance off the shore of Galilee, and a great multitude of people are standing on the beach, okay? And as Nathan preached last week, we heard from Jesus the parable of the sower and then also his reasoning for teaching in parables as he explained to his disciples, And this week, we are picking up right where we left off last week. And in this text that we're dealing with, uh, Jesus offers three more parables, and Matthew kind of breaks in for some editorial comment, all right? Something he wants us to see. So before we dive in, let's take a moment. I want to reiterate two things from last week. Number one, as we read parables, we need to remember that the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are are the main things. It is all too easy for us to get hung up on the aspects of Jesus' parables that are less clear, and we risk missing what Jesus actually intended for us to see in the parable, okay? So we need to pay close attention to how Jesus intends for his parables to be understood. That's number one. Number two, parables are meant to both conceal and reveal simultaneously. They hide truth from those who, are, who remain uncommitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they communicate truth to those who are his. So I will echo Jesus' words over our time of proclamation of the word this morning. He who has ears, let him hear. Draw in close and hear what Jesus has to say. I actually want you to take stock of your heart as the word is preached. I think this is a good moment to do that. Consider these questions to yourself. Do you recoil or do you lean in as the word of God is proclaimed? Are you apathetic or are you eager to understand? Do you turn your mind away to other things or do you strive and lean in to hear more like a child looking at a parade through a crowd, you know, eager to see it? Are you hardened or are you softened by the words of Jesus? The scriptures tell us very clearly that there is no lukewarm response to Christ. The gospel call goes out and you reject it or you receive it. I did the wrong hand motion for reject. This isn't rejecting, that's rejecting. So pay attention, examine your heart, consider yourself as, we, as the word is proclaimed. And consider why you feel the way you feel about the word as it is proclaimed. It does things to you as it is proclaimed. The stakes are far too high for us to not think about these things. So, this morning, Jesus shows us a couple of realities about his kingdom that are seemingly counterintuitive. I would submit that. They're seemingly opposing, paradoxical. Jesus is showing us the certain, inevitable, surefire, guaranteed nature of the kingdom of God, as well as the humble, hidden quietness 
of the kingdom of God. Together, he's showing us these things. So let's get started here in verse 24, and we'll read through what Jesus says again. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed seed in his field, good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed, and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Do you want us to go out and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So what in the world does that mean? And I'm really glad that we're asking that question because Jesus actually explains what this means. So let's skip down to his exposition of this parable in verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sold them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Now, before we get into the meat of this parable, I want to point out Jesus' willingness to explain the parable to the disciples. They ask him to expound and explain, and he does without hesitation. Our Lord is not one who withholds from those who come to him asking. This is who he is. In fact, we, he told us, and if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, um, ask, and you will, uh, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. The Lord Jesus is alive right now, today, and if you go to him, even in the weakest of faith or the smallest of sincerity in your seeking, he is so inclined to give you understanding, to give himself to you. This is in his nature. And out of the gate, Jesus tells us that he owns the world. It is his field. Take a look at verse 37. Jesus says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. And Jesus often refers to himself as the son of man. So Jesus is saying that the world is his field, it's his, and that which he is sowing into his world is people, his people, kingdom people. And the dilemma that we see in the parable, in the story, is that the sowing of kingdom people is not done without opposition. 
There is, in fact, another opposing sower of people. One who works in the cover of darkness and while no one is watching. Jesus identifies him as the devil himself. So there are two sowers and two seeds identified by Jesus in this parable, but there's one field, one world. Jesus is the owner of it. This reality, and it is a reality, is a considerable one. It's worth our time to sit in what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that all the people of his world, his field, are either sown by him as people of the kingdom of God, or they are sown by Satan as opposers to the kingdom of God. There is no middle way. There is no Sweden in this scenario. There's no neutrality. Our culture preaches loudly and often that there is no right or wrong way to live in this world. But Jesus is directly contradicting this type of thinking. Jesus draws a very hard line here. There is only his kingdom and those who oppose it. You are either serve Christ in his kingdom and his purposes in this world, or you serve Satan and his purposes against the kingdom. That is what is being stated in this parable. And it is important to note also that Satan is working in a world that he does not own. It's not his. And he's sowing counterfeit wheat that are actually weeds, sowed to distract and discourage, destroy other people. Satan essentially uses people. He uses people for his own destructive ends against the kingdom of God. But we see in the parable that he will not succeed to that end, will he? We see in the parable that the man who sowed the good seed in his field decides to allow the wheat and the weed to grow up together until the harvest. This way, the wheat is not harmed by the uprooting of the weeds. And so that once the plants reach maturity, they are more clearly distinguished from one another. Jesus says that the end of these two opposing types of people, these two opposing types of plants, the end is already written for them. This isn't a fight that we're unaware of how it's going to end, is what Jesus is saying. This isn't a kingdom that's breaking in and we'll just kind of see what's going to happen. Jesus' kingdom will prevail. The fates of the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one have already been decided. The time and the manner of the harvest has already been worked out by the owner of the field. Take a look at verse 41. There, Jesus says, the son of man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And he says again, he who has hears, let them hear. All, all who oppose Christ and his kingdom will be taken up at the end of the age and thrown into hell. And in that place, there, there, will, be, there will be weeping, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, this is the horrifying fate of those who are sown by Satan. This is a distressing reality that we must be aware of. If you do not call Christ your Lord, your King, your Savior, your Shepherd, then you are bent to destroy and for destruction. 
you're being used for destruction. And I'm pleading with any who might be hearing this who aren't, who don't call Jesus their Lord, to heed his words here. Heed Christ's words. And here's the thing we must remember. Every single person who belongs to Christ and is a part of his kingdom is there because of grace. That's it. God's grace. Christians are all sinners who have been shown mercy and saved from the destructive force of our own sin and hell, which is the due penalty to our sin. There's no room for arrogance or pride, you know, because we're weak and they're weeds. All of us have received grace. Christ, who knew no sin, became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. What we bring to that equation is our need, our sin only. Christ takes it, and then he credits us his righteousness. So if you're a sinner, saved by grace. If you're a person of the kingdom, humble yourself always, remembering the grace in which you have received. It's utter grace. And if you're not a Christian, and if you know people that aren't Christians, I implore you to tell them to repent, which only means just to turn away Turn away from whatever you are trying to derive pleasure or happiness or joy or meaning from that isn't Christ. Turn to Christ and he will forgive you and receive you. And here's the thing. He will actually fulfill your longing for joy and meaning and purpose in this world. In its fullness, everything else is counterfeit. You have nothing to lose and everything to, you have everything to lose and everything to gain at the same time, and turning to Christ. Everything that you are looking for in this world can be found in Christ. Jesus says those who are sons and daughters of the kingdom will be gathered together with him, glorified, shining like the sun in the presence of their father forever at the end of the age. And here's the main thrust of this parable, okay? Here's what Jesus really wants to get across. Christ's kingdom will face all manner of opposition, but Christ's kingdom will prevail. That's the point. The kingdom is made up of people. Those who are being sowed are people. This is a real war with real stakes, real fallout, but Christ's kingdom will prevail. The end has been written. Jesus is establishing his kingdom in his world, and this conquest cannot be stopped. So, what kind of conquest is this, we should ask? In what way or in what manner will this kingdom be established? Jesus deals with these questions in the next two parables. Let's move on to verse 31, or I guess back up to 31. Jesus uh, puts another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, typically, and I'm willing to make this wager, when we think of kingdoms, we probably drum up images in our minds of great palaces, high stone walls, kings in their marble throne rooms, you know, large armies, knights, 
That's the sort of thing we think of. Or when we conceive or read in our history books of how those kingdoms came to be, we see military savvy, political clout and influence, abundant wealth and resources. This is kind of how kingdoms break in in this world. This is not how Jesus describes his kingdom and how it is breaking into the world. Christ's kingdom starts as a seed, scarcely visible to the naked eye. It begins as leaven, hidden away in flour. This seems kind of foolish to our world and was probably a shock to the people who were listening to this, who were longing for something a little more grandiose. But Christ is showing us the otherness of his kingdom. He's showing us the hidden and humble nature of his kingdom. He's showing us that the kingdom of God will prevail, yes, and the manner in which it goes out is like seed covered with dirt. It's like leaven tucked into flour. It's not flashy. It's not boisterous. It's not loud. The work of the kingdom starts in small seemingly insignificant ways, but then it grows and flourishes into something magnificent and wonderful that everyone gets to see. And Christ's kingdom irreversibly permeates and affects all that it goes into, like the leaven and the flour. I think it is remarkable that Jesus, who is God incarnate, and could establish his kingdom in any way that he wanted to with full authority and full power, and he decides to do it this way, in humility. And what Jesus shows in these parables, to a large extent, has come true. Jesus, thousands of years, said, this is the way my kingdom's going to break in, and now we stand here in this room, like here we are. Thousands of years later, there's millions and millions and millions of Christians who are, doing million, who are doing millions of acts of Christ-like service to their communities, and the world has been changed by the very small, seemingly insignificant actions of this man, Jesus, 2,000 years ago. I mean, the insurmountable odds of that just coming about. Think about it. Backwater areas of Galilee, carpenter's son, gets killed. This is no ordinary man that we're speaking of. Any kingdom is a reflection of its king. Christians are the kingdom of God. We are the people of Christ. We are his kingdom. So here's kind of our like point of application here. Kingdom people need to look like our king. That's, that's our point. If we take our cues from Matthew 13, then it's clear that both of our kingdom living and our kingdom proclamation will be more about quiet acts of loving faithfulness than about loud, headline-grabbing tactics. We want to emulate often, or at least I do, I think most of us do, like the Charles Spurgeons, the Billy Grahams of this world, or whoever that is for you. And there's nothing wrong with looking up to the heroes, the giants of the faith and taking pages from their book and learning from them. There's nothing wrong with that. But can I submit to you that the work of the kingdom is far more ordinary than we often realize? Far more ordinary, far more small. Most of the work that Christ is doing through his people will never be known. We'll never hear about it. Millions of Christians just faithfully, obediently living their lives for their king. And it changes the world. 
So um, are you submitting yourself to your king? This is a question we should ask ourselves. To do so, to submit yourself to your king is to do conquest for the kingdom. This is what conquest looks like. Are you faithfully raising your kids? This is warfare. Practicing hospitality with those around you, conquest. Choosing not to gossip with the other coworkers, that's warfare. It's just these little insignificant seeming things. Checking on your elderly neighbor, apologizing when you've done wrong, praying for one another, praying for even those who you don't like or maybe they don't like you. This is the quiet conquest of the kingdom of Christ. It's subtle, it's modest, it's ordinary, faithful, service-oriented action, motivated by the love of Christ that is in us. And it has changed the world. There are billions of Christians both here in this life and that have gone on to be with the Lord, and it all started here in this text, in this moment in history. It started like a seed and now has grown into the tallest of trees. It started like a little leaven but now has permeated the entire world. What Jesus said was going to happen came to happen. And Matthew, the writer of this gospel, does not want us to miss this moment, this person specifically, Jesus. So let's kind of land the plane um, with Matthew's words in 34 and 35. Verse 34 says, All these things... Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Matthew not only wants us to see the teachings of Jesus, but to see the teacher, to see who this is. Jesus is revealing to the disciples ancient knowledge that has been hidden since the foundation of the world, knowledge that he shouldn't have. Jesus is revealing that this is the moment where his kingdom is breaking in. Matthew looks at this moment from it already happening, and we look at this moment from it already happening. We look back, and we have a perspective of seeing the fruit of Christ's actions culminating in the cross in establishing his kingdom, and we look forward in hope to the day that he comes back and rids the world of all evil, all sadness, all sorrow. And we will shine at that moment in his kingdom like the sun. Turn with me to Romans 16, 25, and I kind of want to conclude our time here. Romans 16, 25. Paul just got done finished. He just finished writing the largest letter we have in the New Testament and the largest exploration and explanation of the gospel. And he wraps up all that he wrote with these final three verses. And I think it ties in so well to what we've been talking about today. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings have been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.
Paul looks back and we look back at this moment in which the Christ, the kingdom of Christ is breaking in on actual history with actual people and then we see thousands of years later the actual effects of this God-man Jesus coming and doing what he did. Father, thank you so much um, for sending your son Jesus according to the, your eternal plan of redemption. And we thank you so much for calling a people to yourself. And we pray that you would lead us to repentance, lead us to humility. All in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.